yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still here after all these years, after all these tears I shed. Welcome back to I'm Still Here. I'm Heather. Um, I'm Troy. I'm, and Troy is here with me today. Uh, when I was 26, I was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. It changed everything for me, for our family, I think. Mm -hmm. And but I'm still here. So, Troy, who are you really? So um, I'm Heather's older brother, and um, of course, like most firstborns, I overachieved. So I went to medical school, and I'm a practicing hospital-based internist or hospitalist, um, and I've been practicing medicine. For 25 years I know it's crazy. since 1997 so yeah so my experience now as we'll talk about my my view on Heather's diagnosis is far different than it was when I had just gotten out of medical school yeah so you were 28 when I was diagnosed yes. and you were doing what what was your so at that point I graduated uh, the University of Michigan Medical School in 1997 I had done just an internship um, and the Air Force chose to take me out of internship directly in to yeah. serve they paid for my medical school yeah so i was in my very first year in practice as a air force family practitioner flight surgeon taking care of pilots and their families um when when you were diagnosed yeah, you were in texas i was in texas with yeah. the air force so. yeah so um what do you remember how did you find out that i had cancer um i just I remember a phone call where you had seen Meredith, one of my colleagues, yeah, and found a lump in your breast, yeah, and she was scheduling you for a biopsy, yeah, and then, so we were waiting for that, and then after the biopsy, I mean, we knew it was going to be cancer, yeah, and it turned out to be, you know, a five centimeter mass, and you had other tests and. Um, failed all of them miserably. Yeah, you had, you had basically mets all over, in right? Just innumerable places all throughout your body, um, in bony spaces. So, um, and I think, you know, as an inexperienced physician, who had, I had definitely done my training in Redwell and went to a great school. Yeah. But experience had not occurred yet. So. Yeah. I was looking at the numbers and the prognosis on your diagnosis going, I think my sister's dead yeah, um, or going to be, um, but obviously it didn't turn out that way. Yeah. So um, I went to the, after we did all the testing with Meredith and then I went to an oncologist and then in Grand and, Rapids in Grand Rapids and they told me to get my affairs in order Yeah, and I, whatever the, the events then came that I Larry actually called mom because I couldn't and she called you and mm -hmm. you helped me find my oncologist that I'm still with today right um so I didn't really know what to do but you were still in the state of Michigan um and so uh, you know I was used to calling and referring patients to higher levels of care mm -hmm. in my current job I just called back one of my former professors at the University of Michigan yeah. and actually managed to catch him <laughs> and asked him who he would be. recommend. And he gave me uh, Dr. Mariver yeah. as a reference. And um, I, within a couple hours, I was talking to Dr. Mariver, actually kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, and she said, nope, she, your sister sounds like exactly the right person to come here. Yeah. We'll get her in. 
And then I, I think she called you. Yeah, she called me. And that was on a Friday. And I started chemo on Monday. Like the. And I talked to her either th- Thursday afternoon, th- I think. Yeah. And she called you on a Friday, I think. Yeah. It was crazy how fast it all happened. And she, um, yeah, it was it was amazing. But she, I think, told us both the same thing. Like, she's a U of M patient. And yes. well, let's go. We have things we can do for her. Yeah. And, um, and that was the first time, like, for me, I went from, like, being having no hope and being such an anomaly in Grand Rapids. Like, this never happens. This, you know, blah, blah, blah. To, like, come on in. <laughs> We see hard stuff, and it made right. a huge difference in how just how I felt about things. So I, yeah, and I think the the viewpoint. It's just it's so hard to uh, kind of pick this apart yeah. based on experience. Now having been a physician for a long time, yeah, um, I look at the practice in Grand Rapids, and I actually rotated with them when I when I got out of the Air Force and came back to residency. <laughs> I didn't rotate with I that particular that. doctor. Okay. Um, but I did rotate with other doctors. And they have very good doctors in that practice. But, but, um, you know, around the 2000 time frame, there's a big difference between a National Cancer Institute research institution yeah. like the University of Michigan or Wisconsin. Right. Or Mayo Clinic. Right. And a large practice in... A city. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, now West Michigan, Michigan Cancer and Hematology has more of a research focus than they had in the past yeah. because of Michigan State and things pushing sure. that along. But, I mean, it just wasn't the right place for you. Right. Um, standard therapy was probably not going to do it. Yeah. Well, we didn't, I mean, I immediately, I think, was doing things that were not necessarily standard I, I think at the time it would have been, I had thought anyway, it was going to be like surgery and then chemo and things like that. We started with chemo, ended up doing just kind of a, everything kind of got flipped right at the start, heading towards that stem cell transplant was the, I think the big. Right. But these, know, then these approaches over the last 20 yeah. plus years have evolved into yep. more standard chemotherapy. So starting chemotherapy ahead of time to debulk or decrease the size of a tumor is now a fairly standard approach. Yeah. Whereas it wasn't necessarily yeah. that standard back then. Well, and it's interesting because I talk to women a lot who are like, get it out, get it out, get it out. And what I tell them yeah. is, but it was so empowering actually to see it shrink. Because my initial thought too was like, get it out. But right. it was really empowering that by the end of like the first, I think the first time we really scanned after three chemos, it was undetectable, that tumor. Yes. That was crazy. Like that made me feel so like, you know. Yep. And now, see, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. Um, but but my job as a physician is still to encourage and help you understand what you need to understand. Sure. But also be calculating and thinking about all the other possibilities in the background Absolutely. that are good or bad without freaking you out. Um, so, you know, for example, in that instance, when someone has even a non-metastatic cancer diagnosis, mm-hmm. let's say it's colon cancer that went nowhere yeah there's a big mass yeah and you're going to go in and get that taken out they you know i've seen lots of those folks do neoadjuvant chemo to shrink the tumor before they go in and take it out now which is a standard approach um and that's that's all fine i think the oncologists i work with are really for the most part very good people um but it's different for every patient it is (laughs) and you really have to listen to the expertise 
of the people you're working with. And if you don't, for some reason, trust them or you can't develop a relationship with them, then you need to go find someone else. Yeah. Um, because you just don't know what you don't know. There is so right. much evolving in the field of cancer sure. where you have these therapies that are targeted at specific genetics yeah. of a specific person or tumor. Um, so I would say you have to be very careful not to just jump to conclusions and not just to go in and get it out. You know, it's the in cancer in general, in yeah. general, it's not the tumor you see right, that kills right, you. Right, right, right. That's what I've come to understand over time. It's the fact that it may have already learned how to spread and has set up microscopic yes. spots other places yes. that you don't know about. Right. And that's why we do chemotherapy and these other systemic treatments because we're trying to knock those things out right that we can't see absolutely so yeah I, that's a process though to somebody i mean i'm in healthcare, but you know and so have some general knowledge but to really understand that it, it isn't about this main tumor that was just kind of the the flag right that right. that put up the this is the problem um to learn that yeah all of these things it's really about what's happening that we can't see <laughs> so it is yeah so I've talked a little bit on here before, but can you, do you recall the conversation that we had about statistics and what you told me about that? I don't remember exactly what I said to you at the time, but mm -hmm. um, I had heard, I had a lecture in medical school mm -hmm. um, in oncology and it was Dr. Frances Bull and I'm sure she's retired now, but mm -hmm. she was a wonderful lady. Um, and she talked to us about prognosis and statistics. Okay. What I remember her saying that I understand now, but I didn't get then, mm -hmm. is that the statistics don't matter. So let's say someone tells you you have a 90% chance of being dead in five years. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what that means is that out of 100 people, 90 that they measured have passed on within five years, but mm -hmm. 10 are still alive. Right. And the trick that she impressed on us is you never know which side of that split somebody is going to be on, right? Right. So you don't tell your patient that they have a 90% chance of death. Or if it's 50-50, you don't even tell them it's 50-50. Mm -hmm. You don't know how someone's going to do. Mm -hmm. They might be on the good side or the bad side of that number. Right. Okay. But I think there are things that I've learned over time that help. I can help people make decisions about what they might want to or not want to pursue based on things that have nothing to do with the prognosis of their disease. Yeah, I think we could we could probably talk about these kind of things for a long time. But like just to start with that, I remember the surgeon I had met with early on shaking his head when he got to stage four, talking about the percentages. Like if you're stage four, like just shaking his head. And right. again, the impact so, that had on me was like, oh my gosh, because then two days later, I'm sitting in the office hearing that I'm stage four, you know, and thinking, oh gosh, I was in those. I'm I'm now in these percentages that. Right. And again, as an inexperienced physician, I was, I was very scared. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you, the, you really have to look at every person, you know, having worked with a lot of different people, not just doctors, but you and I have managed a lot of different people over time. Sure. You have to look at every person as to what their makeup is. So you yeah. go see a surgeon. Why is the <laughs> surgeon shaking their head about your cancer? Because the surgical mentality is, I cure disease. Yeah. I go in and take out a diseased gallbladder, yeah. and the person is fixed. Yeah. I'm a good surgeon. Okay. True. The surgeon's looking at you and saying, stage four, taking her mass out 
won't cure, cure her. Yeah. I must be a bad surgeon. I can't cure her. It's a very kind of old school, I think somewhat simplistic way of looking at things. Sure. But that's that's yeah. why people go into surgery because they want to cure disease. Yeah. They look at what I do as an internist and they go, I could never do what you do. You just right. manage disease. You don't cure anybody. Right. Well, I, right. I help them improve their life and make good choices. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's also like for me that management of disease is the whole name of this game. It is. Right? <laughs> so yeah. I just remember it made such a huge impact to me because it kind of flipped the switch of, okay, then I've got a shot. Because I just decided, hi, Ivy. Everybody knows Ivy. Um, <laughs> I just decided like, well, why not me? Like, I'm just going to view it that way. I'm, right. you know, instead of, I don't know. So it, it made a huge difference, the whole statistical, I don't know, conversation. So here's a question. What do you, when you, in, do you encounter patients who are literally like, what's my, what are my chances? And how do you deal with that kind of stuff? I do. And I, I think, so you have, let me back up a little bit. Sure. Okay. Um, it used to be when I was in college and medical school. The internet was just becoming a thing. Yeah. Okay. We had books. Yep. Like I just sold or gave away all of my old books because <laughs> yes. no one uses books anymore. Right. Um, nowadays, anyone can go out to Dr. Google. Yes. And look up a question. Yeah. And honestly, I do the same thing sometimes. Sometimes I'm faced with something and I, I'm trying to find a source to reference yeah. it. I Google it first. Sure. There's usually a couple of good hits that help me go to where I need to go. Yeah. But that doesn't make up for experience in a field. So the example I use, getting back to your question, yeah. when I have a patient or usually a family member who's trying yeah. to help guide their loved one through something, yeah. they're asking me these questions. And what they're really thinking in the back of their head is, oh, I, I had a family member who had cancer and this is what happened to them. So that's what's going to happen to yeah. my mom. Yeah. No, it doesn't work that way. Right. Everybody's different. Every situation is different. There's a ton of nuance that factors into how we make decisions and sure. what's likely to be good for you. Yeah. Um, it's frustrating to me, folks. I'll just be honest with you. It's frustrating to me when I see someone who thinks they can be their own plumber or their own electrician, their own mechanic. You can't. You may be able to find a YouTube video on how to fix your garbage disposal. I've done it myself. Right, right. I didn't know that there was a little thing on the bottom that you could put the tool in and spin it to un oh, right. unlock it. Okay. Right. So that's fine. I'm not going to break anything that way. But if I try to fix my car, it's got 14 different computers and all of this stuff. Right. So I take it to a mechanic. Right. Someone who has expertise in that. And I tell my patients and their family members the same thing. Yeah. I don't do the electrical work in my house. I don't fix my car anymore, even though I know how to change brakes right. on my 1970s Dodge. It's not no, the, sa no. not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So, so folks, find an expert that you trust and that you can talk with and realize that you really do need their expertise to help guide you through right. a process. Um, I think the other thing that's a stumbling block for a lot of folks, which is hard to manage, is the fear and anxiety of something that's really scary. Sure. Yes. And I just approach that and have them, I try to get them to acknowledge it. Okay. You know, I understand that you want to know this detail and this yeah. detail and this detail and this detail. That's normal. Yeah. You're trying to control and understand a process. 
that is really kind of uncontrollable for you. Yeah. You need someone to help you. Don't be thinking you're going to understand and make all these decisions yeah. on your own because you'll make some decisions out of fear. You'll jump to the wrong conclusions. Yeah. Got to so, get someone to help you. So it's interesting when you're talking about that, though, that you're you're also referencing family members. And I so often in this work, you know, people reach out to me all the time. And a lot of times it is a family member. Right. And they're saying, right. hey, you need to, can you talk to, can you? And yes. I'm always very much like, I'm happy to help, but I need that person. Like, to, I want to talk to that person. Like, and, and even talking to them about, like, you're not in charge. Like, I want to know what the, what the, how the, the patient feels. Right. You know, and oftentimes but, I think we find in healthcare that there's a very different perspective coming from the person with the disease yes. than the family members so around them. All families, all relationships have some element of this dynamic between the person who's the talker and not the talker, aggressive and passive. Um, and that's normal. Sure. That's normal. But I completely Everybody agree. in our family is a talker, though. Yeah, but I think yeah. what you really need to know in the end is what is the patient, the person yes. with the disease, what are they afraid of? Yes. What are their goals? Yes. And it's impossible to get there when you're going through an intermediary. Absolutely. Now, that intermediary is well-intended, yep. but they're driven by their own perspective and their own fear and they don't necessarily always pick up on what the patient wants well and also so, i think that the patient doesn't always feel free to speak freely and that's because, because the, of the dynamic they have with that person yes, right yes they so, don't want to say i mean if you're whatever in your 90s i work with elderly people they don't want to they don't have maybe the heart to say i'm really tired and i'm okay with dying or right or you know this is what scares me it or these people emotionally are putting such a load on me right. that I can't. You sure, know, I don't want. To, all personally, I don't want to be on a breathing machine. But my wife would be really angry if, with me if I didn't try. Okay. Okay. Right. I mean, that's an honest right. discussion. Honestly, with me, a lot of times I only get that information, and it's not because I'm twisting their arm. I they tell me that in private. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and then we have the family meeting. Yeah. So there. This is just. This is just personal dynamics, people. This is the way it works. <laughs> I know that a lot of you are well-intended, somewhat controlling types, and you have been the ones to get things done for your family member, mm. but we really have to listen to them about what they want, and what they want is okay, whether they want to be aggressive or they want to yeah. not fight. Likewise, if you're the person with cancer, it's okay to make your own path. I made my own path. Right. I definitely relied on all of you guys, my family, you know, my doctors and all yeah. that. But it was, I was, I always say I was the captain of my wellness team. Like, I was the one yeah. really trying, trying to figure out where to go and how to go through all of that. Yes, and and some people are, you know, very aggressive in being their own captain, and other yes. people are very passive because they've just they've always been passive. Yeah, and again, don't get me wrong, I that's okay. Yeah, for we sure. We all get through life the way we get through life. Um, my goal as a, I don't know, a healthcare coordinator, a provider, a physician, right. yeah, is to find out what your goals are. Yes. And what you understand and what you don't understand and try to, as you're making decisions, to try and help you understand what that really looks like. Yeah. You know, so um, 
I think, uh, you know, the hardest part in all of this is, you know, for example, um, like there are subsets of patients who do well with serious disease, like a liver or a heart transplant, and there are those who don't. Okay. And honestly, the determining factor for a lot of folks is not their disease process. It's their support system. Yeah. There are people who don't have, um, you know, they, they don't have supports. They don't have uh, a lot of people in their lives anymore. Yeah. Maybe it's just because their family was really screwed up. Maybe it's because they had an addiction. Maybe it's right. whatever. You yes. Know? Um, and those people don't do as well. But we just have to recognize that, you know. So when I'm talking to a person about a liver, mm -hmm. you know, some of them will qualify for a liver transplant and others probably won't. Yeah. And um, so it's really important to be compliant with your program. When you go see the doctor and you, you're, they're asking you to do things, Yeah. if you're facing a diagnosis that's got multiple hoops and lots of things you're going to have to do, Yeah. You actually have to prove to the system that you're going to do it. So if they're asking you to take pills, if they're asking you to change your diet, if they're asking you to do those things, and you're facing this big procedure or process after that, if you don't do those things, do you think that they're going to trust you to get their liver or their heart? I've never thought about it like that. I mean, I'm... No, I'm sure it's a... <laughs> right. So, and honestly, it's one of those things for me that I kind of go, you know, I guess I want that liver or heart to go to the most compliant, the people that are maybe going to get the right. best. But I'm not, I'm not saying the whatever. person who doesn't do those things is bad. No, I'm, I totally I'm saying they've never had anyone to help them or they learned, they learned bad coping skills. Or even they're okay with being done. And that's okay, too. Done. That's yeah. the thing, too, that I also... Yeah. I mean, we usually talk more about, you know, living on here, but I think it's so important to have conversations about how you want to go forward. Well, so, but I mean, if we put a finer point disease. on that, if you're 26 years old, yeah. or 27, yeah. um, and your heart is great and your lungs are great and your kidneys are great, and you've got all of your strength yeah. to be able to Put a little stress on the heart and the lungs to get through a double stem cell transplant. Right. Your chances of surviving that are yeah. pretty good. Yeah. If you're 72 with lungs that are shot from COPD right. and a somewhat weakened heart. Yeah. And now you've got metastatic colon cancer. Yeah. We just cannot push your body as farther yeah. as far without hurting you, right? right. So it changes what we right. can do. I agree with that. Let's just talk about the double stem cell quickly because oftentimes people are like, oh, that must you be You know, the we key. don't do that anymore. Exactly. Why? Okay. So, <laughs> I mean. From a doctor perspective. So, you went to a National Cancer Institute sponsored research hospital. Yep. Okay. One of the top five NIH research budgets in the country at the yep. University of Michigan. Okay. So. We don't do that anymore because we discovered that the process of going through a dual stem cell transplant kills more people than standard chemotherapy. What is a stem cell transplant? It means that we use a fancy machine called a flow cytometer to mark 
individual cells coming out of the bone marrow. They take your bone marrow sample. They take really your blood. Really big needles. <laughs> yes, they suck out a lot of blood. And then they mark these individual cells that are the progenitors to regrow everything you need to make. Red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and so on. And they set them aside and they save them. Basically, we'll say a freezer, but it's yep. a little fancier than that. Yeah. Then in the lab, they, they take those progenitor cells and they start to stimulate them with things to regrow and make new cells, but they have filtered out all the cancer cells from your bone marrow using that fancy mm -hmm. flow cytometer and a bunch of cellular markers. So they're, they're trying to give you pure bone marrow that doesn't have any cancer in it anymore. Mm -hmm. Great idea. Okay, and you don't, it's not a bone marrow transplant from someone else, it's your own cells, so you're yeah. not gonna reject it. And they did it twice, because you know, once isn't good enough, let's kill your bone marrow two times. So and what they do with that also, though, is they then give high-dose chemotherapy. You need those cells to, to so be able to... So they take the cells out, and they give you high-dose chemotherapy the first time. They completely wipe out your own bone marrow and any cancer cells and anything else that's in there. The mortality for a young, healthy person or a middle-aged, relatively healthy person with one dose of that chemotherapy or one cycle, mm. 7%. 7% people die. Mm. All comers, okay? You didn't do it once, you did it twice, because, you know, let's just Worse really better. wipe it out. <laughs> so they give you, you know, they kill all your bone marrow, they give it back to you, they let it regrow some, then they kill it all again and they give it back to you. The overall mortality on that dual bone marrow stem cell transplant was 15%. Mm -hmm. And it was not better than what they called TAC which is what, uh, taxotere, adriamycin, and cytoxin, yep. which was the standard That's, chemotherapy at the time, yep. which had less mortality, short-term, long-term, turned out to be about the same. Yeah. So anyway, so we don't do that anymore. Yeah. But you don't, you don't learn these things unless you actually study them and try right. different things. Right. Yeah, my point in, in talking about that is just that that wasn't, that wasn't the like the reason I'm here kind of thing, you know, necessarily. No, well, I mean, I, I think you're here because God's still got you here. Okay. I mean, um, that doesn't mean that God doesn't use other people to help you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah. I'm a strong believer. Some people would call it holistic. I'm just going to say the spirituality, the spiritual side of life, things we can't see, measure, feel yeah. necessarily are still very important yeah well i i think definitely um I, to take that a little bit less spiritual and more i think mindset really matters i think in terms of being able to process all of that fear that you were talking about initially and not let it consume me and talk of, and one of the ways that i could deal with that is journaling and journaling talking. and talking and praying and all of those things are the things that really uh help me to be able to say yeah you know, or get through a day without like just being overcome with fear on yeah. a regular basis, you know, so. And I think, again, it's important to have some friends, some family. For sure. You know, you need, you need one or two strong people in your life who can help get you through that process. Right, right. Um, who can drag you back to the hospital when you're nauseated, <laughs> vomiting, refusing right. to go back because I'm not sick. <laughs> it's like, no, I really think it's time we go back. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I think that's true. And I was thinking too, like I would, I don't know how you felt, but I would always call you for reassurance when I was like really freaked out from a medical standpoint. And even though you knew 
I kind of what I was up against. You always did a good job of like reassuring me that. Well, I'm glad. Um, you know, I think I became more hopeful over time going through the process. I think uh, certainly Dr. Mariver and her approach gave me more hope too. Sure. Um, but uh, you just you don't really know what you're going to get. Yeah. Um, I do, um, as you know, like I, I prefer to work in small hospitals yeah. now because we get to do the ICU and that's that's fun. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that's true in medicine, regardless of what field you're in, is that bad things happen quickly, good things happen slowly. Okay. Okay, yeah. so when I'm working in the ICU with someone and everything's, the wheels have fallen off the bus and we are going the wrong direction and the person gets really sick seemingly really fast. Yeah. You know, we drag you into the ICU, we put you on whatever we need to put you on, breathing yeah. machine, breathing mask, this, that, and the other thing, yeah. IV fluids, antibiotics, pressors, yeah. blood pressure medicines, and the whole process there is we're putting out the fire. Yeah. Okay? We've yeah. got to stop this process that's yeah. going backwards. When we stop it, invariably I'm talking to some family members who are really scared. Yeah. And what yeah. I tell them is exactly that. This looks scary to you. I feel good about where we are right now. Yeah, that's I awesome. felt bad about where we were six hours ago. Yeah. But we have largely stopped this process. Mm -hmm. Now we need days and days of very slow improvement. Right. Okay. So you need to understand that even though if it looks like nothing good is happening, yeah. nothing bad is happening. Well, I remember you telling me, and this was years out, and I don't know if it was something I was dealing with, maybe a possible regression or something like that. And I remember you saying, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I was like, oh, okay. Because I do think when, you know, when you're a patient, you do kind of go, oh my gosh, like this is going to blow right. up again or whatever. And you were just like, it's a marathon. We, we're going to take this one step at a time. Keep going, yep. you know. Yep. And I've, I have been able to kind of say that too to people when they're first diagnosed even. It's like, put out that fire, right? Right. But it's also important to kind of realize that um, putting the right people in place is important it doesn't it have it's not necessarily the fire that we might think it is or a couple days oh, maybe won't make a big difference I, at the beginning right i mean even we've talked about you know we all have our own struggles it's always sure. scarier to us for sure i don't doc i don't do my own doctoring i know a lot of doctors <laughs> do i wouldn't advise it you know what's the saying um a physician who treats himself has a fool as a doctor, something like that. <laughs> I mean, or fool as a patient. Anyway, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. so I see my primary care provider and I talk to other people about myself. I make my wife and daughter do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, they'll ask me questions. I'll point them the right direction, but yeah. I'm too emotionally involved yeah. necessarily to be objective. Right? Yeah, for sure. So I, that's just the way it is for all of us. We're yeah. emotionally involved. We yeah. have to find other people that we trust where you can talk to yeah. who give you good advice. And you still have the right to say yes or no to certain decisions. Absolutely. Okay, I'm not saying that. Absolutely. But you don't want to be Dr. Google. You don't want to be out there saying, I think this is what we should do. Uh, sorry, folks, you don't have the expertise to fix my truck. <laughs> and neither do I. Yeah. No, I remember, I think a long time ago, I sent you a picture of the mug that said that, like, your your Google search is not equal to my... My medical <laughs> experience my or medical degree. degree. Right. And but it's not even the degree, it's the experience. It is the experience. I read a book, um, Malcolm Gladwell. Mm -hmm. He's a great author. I love all his stuff. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I think it was in the book Outliers, he talks about becoming expert at something mm -hmm. and the concept of 10,000 hours to expertise. Okay. So if you're a master piano mm -hmm. performer or mm -hmm. French horn performer like my college yep. roommate was or a doctor, mm -hmm. there's this idea where you're really working hard putting in your 10,000 hours to get really good at yeah. what you're doing. Even the Beatles. Yeah. You know, they formed in Liverpool and they played, but then they went to Germany and did nothing but, but 10 but, hours, six days a week, yeah. playing a lot of different kind of styles of rock and roll and, and bringing in things from the United States and stuff they were yeah. picking up in Europe. And they turned out to be certainly the most innovative pop band of the 60s, Yeah, bringing in all this stuff. So that 10,000 hours to experience or expertise, there's something to that. I totally agree with that. I think that's something where I've sort of, um, over the years, kind of poo-pooed, like even my expertise in being a cancer patient. And now I'm a little more willing to own it. Like I know a lot of, st I've been through this for a really long time. I'm in a situation where um, I, I feel more comfortable saying this is how I, you know, this right. is what I have come to know. It's, you know, and, and just, again, it doesn't mean it's all right or all wrong, but it, it means that those hours, that the time on earth has taught me something. Well, and you've also learned that the process that you go through with medicine and with your disease is constantly changing. Absolutely. So what we knew in 1998 is not what we knew, know now in 2022. Right. You know, you were on anti-bone resorptive drugs for a long time, right? Yeah. Because you had all these bone metastases. Right. And we knew that those helped to fight off Mets. Yeah, but they also make your bones more brittle, right? Yes. <laughs> so eventually you had to make some choices and your yeah. doctors were saying, I don't know, I think you should take it. And I'm like, I don't know, you've broken three bones. When are we going to stop? Right, right. Yeah. And that was nothing compared to the O&J that came. Well, right. Uh, you know, so yeah. that's another concept in life and in medicine, but there's risk and benefit. Yeah, and that's the one thing, too, that I, I think over time I felt more comfortable with. Even like, you know, I'm on a half a dose of Fosodex now, Fulvestrant, and the question is, do we stop it or do we keep? And I, I'm more, and we don't know, I, I agree, I know. We, you know, but I'm more willing to... In the beginning, it would have been, well, this isn't up to me. But now I'm more willing to weigh in on all of those things and just go, this is how I, you Yes, know, but you're, but doing, me what you're doing it in a balanced way. Yeah. Not out of fear. No, no. You're looking forward down the road and saying, Yeah. I know that everything has risks and benefits. Yeah. You know, it has potential good and bad outcomes. Right. So you're trying to say, where's the worst outcome? Yeah. And Dr. Mariver, she's awesome. Yeah. But what is she worried about? Cancer. Absolutely. Right? What is That's the surgeon, her job. <laughs> what is the surgeon worried about? Yeah. That thing that they could take out yes, that maybe they can cure sure. you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so everyone comes to things with their particular perspective. Now, yeah. now Sophia Mariver is also very balanced and understands that her meds, like her septin, might hurt your heart. Yeah. Okay. She understands that. She's no dummy. Yeah. And she's, I think, more balanced about that than some other subspecialists. Yeah that I work with have been, you know, yeah. 
the, the constant joke I face in the hospital is the cardiologists and the nephrologists. The cardiologists want to knock all the water out of the body, but they squeeze the kidneys too hard. Yes. Oh, my right? gosh. Living the in... nephrologist yeah. wants to give the water back, but then the heart yes. goes into heart failure. You know. So, so working in assisted living, I feel like that's what every human in those buildings is dealing oh, yeah. with, is those things. They're dehydrated. They Not all of these things. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah. But, but you're that's, right. that's the way it works. Every specialty yeah. has its own system. Yeah. Um, you know, and another plug for something that's hard to find these days, guys, is you really need a good primary care provider. Yeah. And that, I don't mean necessarily physician. I work with a lot of good NPs and PAs. Again, yeah. it comes down to their experience and their mindset. Yeah. Um, so there, it's it can be hard in the office when you've got all these different subspecialists involved. Mm-hmm. You need a primary provider with some backbone and some experience who's going to say, no, nah, I don't think you should be taking that water pill that often. I don't think you should be taking that extra one. Yeah. Yeah. Who's willing to kind of manage all of these other. Yeah. And I, I will say too, for me, like, um, I just, because this is rural medicine, like we live in a rural area. Yeah. It took me a year to get an appointment with the PCP that I wanted. But you know what? That was seven or eight years ago. So it was worth the wait to have the per- right. You know what I mean? So you kind of, people get, no, I'm not going to do that. Take the appointment for God's sakes. And if you need to do something in the meantime, do it. But like, yeah. sometimes it's worth, you know, I don't know. We, we act because we're, we're upset about how slow things can go or whatever. But Well, I, I, you know, I'm a doctor, so say what you want about me. Um, but... We're just people too. Right. And, you know, especially post pandemic, there was already a shortage of yeah. physicians in the office setting. Yeah. Now it's even worse. Sure. So, you know, I, I think you do, you do want to be picky about who your primary is, someone that you can work with who really understands the different subspecialties and the system they're working in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want somebody to, like, for me, it's important um for them to know kind of yeah kind of all of a little bit about all of the different things I've been through but also my perspective on how how involved I am you know what I mean I'm going to be coming oh, yeah. and asking questions and coming you know I I don't feel like it's just my <clears throat> my PCP's responsibility to stay healthy in terms of those you know she, I don't need her to nag me I do want her to bring things up and say hey have you done yeah. this you know what I mean well, so, I mean, yes, I completely agree. And honestly, as a physician, I'm a people manager. Yeah. You know, and I'm just trying to help people get as much as they can out of their life and their health care along in, in keeping with what their goals are. But, you know, you're managing people and their own personalities yeah. and their family member who's in the room with them and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Trying to get them into a place where they're making good choices as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. You know, now I say that sometimes people make choices that I personally wouldn't make, but it's not my life. Sure. And I look at it and I go, okay, that's what they want. Yeah. My, my goal is I'll do what they want and I still have to try not to hurt them in the process. Sure. Absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. Thank you for hanging out with me. Yeah. Thanks for having me over. (laughs) Um, I'm sure this will be really helpful to people. And if we get follow-up questions, I'll track you down via Zoom or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, folks, life is scary. 
yeah. it is really scary and scary stuff happens to all of us whether it's medical or personal or family circumstances yeah. um so you need to think about what you want and um and you need to get other people around you who are supportive and helpful uh and you need to manage some of those toxic people yeah. out of out of your life well we've talked to, uh, on here about building the bubble i mean I, that's one thing i did very early i built a bubble that was like mm, i'm not gonna i didn't yeah. i could not emotionally take on other people's fear and we a lot of people are to do that they're well intended but they're, they're really about them they, yes they're really just they're fearful they're scared yes. and they want to talk about their and it has nothing to do with you yeah but the stuff that comes out man it doesn't it, yeah. once it goes in it's hard to get it back out yeah those those <laughs> folks are just not helpful right um you can't change them no sometimes you just got to marginalize them or cut them out i agree i agree well thank you for um yeah being the best older brother I feel like you've always taken the role of Big Brother very seriously. Like that picture we had when we were little kids. <laughs> There's been a few times along the years that it hasn't well, been that, you know, but for the most part, it's always been. I think I think we've had a, a good, really blessed family, and um, you know, yes, our quirks and our our oddities, but a lot of a lot of wisdom and love in in the midst of that. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for being here. All right, no problem. We'll see ya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still here after all these years, after all these tears I shed. I'm still here and I'm walking this earth like I should be. There was days that I didn't know if I would be. Feet in the ground and my head in the clouds Cause I'm still here Like I should be Yeah, yeah, like I knew that I could be Here we go, here we go Hey everyone, I hope you love this episode of I'm Still Here and I wouldn't want you to miss out on what comes next. So be sure to rate, review, and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, especially if you found it helpful. We need all the shares, likes, stars, and love we can get. We'd also love to hear from you. Leave your comments and questions and we'll incorporate them into future episodes. Have a great day.